Welcome to the Alabama Literacy Network's podcast, which is designed to share information and best practices for literacy in the state of Alabama. We hope to bring a wide variety of resources together to help school leaders, teachers, and parents so that all children read at high levels. We believe that literacy is a fundamental right that is tied to so many positive outcomes that we want for the citizens of Alabama. This podcast was brought to you by Bright Spot Ed, LLC, an educational consulting company based in Alabama, providing consulting, professional learning, evaluation services and resources, our goal is to highlight the good and replicate it across education. We are currently offering an ACLD PLU on Natalie Wexler's book, The Knowledge Gap. Check us out at brightspoted.com. I'm your host, Shelley Bell Smith. Today, we will be talking to Miss Natalie Wexler. Natalie Wexler is an education writer and the author of The Knowledge Gap, The Hidden Calls of America's Broken Education System and How to Fix It. She is also the co-author with Judith Hockman of The Writing Revolution, A Guide to Advancing Thinking Through Writing in all subjects and grades and is a senior contributor to the education channel on Forbes.com. Her articles and essays on education and other topics have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and other publications. She has spoken on education before a wide variety of groups and appeared on a number of TV and radio shows, including Morning Joe and NPR's Own Point and 1A. She holds a bachelor's degree from Harvard University, a master's degree in history from the University of Sussex, and a JD from the University of Pennsylvania. And she's worked as a reporter, a Supreme Court law clerk, a lawyer, and a legal historian, the author of three novels. She lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband and has two adult children. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you for being here today. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me, Shelley. Well, I will admit to our audience to being a huge fan of yours to the point of being a crazy super fan and having led studies of the knowledge gap before, and now I'm currently leading a study of it statewide. This book has really ignited a movement across the world on the need to build knowledge in children in order to improve reading skills. Can you tell us how you came to this topic and how the book came about? Sure. And I must say, I am delighted and surprised at the amount of interest there has been in in Alabama and elsewhere in the book. I don't think I really expected that. I was, let's say it's beyond my wildest dreams. And the way this started, really, I did not intend to write a book about reading or education. And I was really... I just got very interested in what was going on in the sort of education reform movement in Washington, D.C., where I live. There was a lot going on, and it seemed incredibly important, especially figuring out, you know, what was the cause of what has been called the achievement gap, you know, this gap in test scores and and other outcomes between kids at the upper and lower ends of the socioeconomic spectrum. And just seemed incredibly important that we narrow that gap. And so I started getting involved. I was writing about it as a journalist, just really on the local level, and also was on the board of a charter school and, you know, going to all sorts of expert panels and everything I could get my hands on to read. And it seemed at the time, that the the real problem was high school. And that was sort of the mystery I thought I should set out to solve. Why is it, it looks like we're making progress in lower grades, elementary grades, but then why does everything seem to fall apart at upper grade levels? So that's what I started with. What I stumbled upon and was eventually explained to me was a lot of the problems we see in high school really have their roots in what happens in elementary school and especially the way we try to teach reading comprehension and how much time we spend on that 
at the expense of other subjects. And, you know, other people had talked about that, written about it in a kind of academic way, but it seemed to me it was so important. Nobody was talking about it. And maybe if somebody wrote a book about this topic in a kind of journalistic, engaging way, that people might pay more attention. And I actually didn't think I could even get a book contract. I tried to convince a couple of other better known education journalists to take on this topic. And they said, oh, it's too complicated. <laughs> but fools rush in. So <laughs> we're so lucky that you did rush in because it really has informed a lot of what is going on in the field. For people who don't know this body of work, what are the big shifts that are outlined in the book that are essential to improving students' reading skills? Well, first of all, I'd say we need to distinguish between different kinds of reading skills. There are foundational reading skills related to decoding words. And there's one set of problems with the way we've been teaching that, which is you know, we haven't been teaching phonics and, and other foundational skills systematically and effectively. At the same time, we've seen reading comprehension as something that could be taught systematically as a set of skills like finding the main idea or making inferences, sometimes called strategies. And the shift that needs to take place there is, is less widely recognized, but it's hugely important. And that shift is essentially to understand that the way to improve reading comprehension is not through having kids practice these skills sort of in isolation on books that have been determined to be, you know, at their individual reading level so that they're easy for them to read on their own. And they're just, it doesn't really matter what the topic is. It could be zebras one day, clouds in it. And the idea is that they'll just get better at finding the main idea or whatever. And that will equip them to read and understand pretty much whatever's put in front of them down the road. And the problem there is cognitive psychologists have understood for a long time now that that's really not how reading comprehension works. Much more important than your skill at finding the main idea is how much background knowledge you have about the topic you're reading about. You know, you could have an easy time finding the main idea if you know a lot about the topic and a terrible time finding the main idea if you don't. And also that it's not so much that absolutely need to have background knowledge about whatever you're reading about, because obviously a lot of educated adults are able to read about topics they don't already know about and learn from what they're reading, it's also that you have to get to a certain threshold of general academic knowledge and vocabulary to enable you to do that. And the way to get kids to that threshold is through building their knowledge about things like history and geography and science and the arts, because those are the subjects that have the most potential to build academic knowledge and vocabulary. And unfortunately, those are the subjects, especially social studies and the arts, that we've been marginalizing or eliminating because we think we need to spend more time on those reading comprehension skills and strategies. And the kids who suffer the most here are the ones who are less likely to pick up academic knowledge and vocabulary outside of school. So those are the, the, the kids with less educated parents. That explains a lot of what we call the achievement gap. Those reading tests, they are reflecting sort of general academic knowledge. Um, they're not tied to what kids might have learned in school, assuming they are learning something substantive in school. And so the kids who've been lucky enough to be able to acquire that kind of knowledge outside school are the ones who generally are going to do better on those tests. And what you just described is a huge shift in the way many 
schools have taught reading for a very long time. And just any one of those things is a huge lever for improvement. I was thinking about the part about limiting science and social studies because we're going to try to focus on improving reading, which has had the exact opposite effect. And so just that one thing can really sabotage what we're doing with students. And like you said, and it's most dire in those kids that can afford it the least. Exactly. I mean, it's the kids who rely on school the most for that academic knowledge and vocabulary who in our current system are the least likely to get it there. I mean, it's all well-intentioned. Nobody wants kids to fail, but we have actually been unintentionally shooting ourselves in the foot in our quest to make things more equitable. Yeah. And that's not to even consider the whole big issue of those foundational skills. And uh, listeners of this podcast, we've talked to lots of people well-versed in the science of reading. And so I kind of equate the science of reading with this work or, you know, beyond the decoding that this is the next step. Well, I would say it's got to be done in tandem with the decoding work because, I mean, for one thing, the earlier you start building kids' academic knowledge, the better. And we shouldn't wait until kids have learned to decode or read fluently for them to start acquiring knowledge. They can acquire lots of knowledge through listening and discussion, listening especially to read aloud that are more complex than they can read themselves. And then talking about them as, you know, using that vocabulary, talking about those concepts, that'll help that information stick in long-term memory and it will serve them very well in years to come. And my fear is, you know, the science of reading is often interpreted, you know, it's based on to some extent, that National Reading Panel report with, that established these five so-called pillars of liter- early literacy. And the fifth pillar is comprehension. And that report only talked about a handful of comprehension strategies that they had found evidence for. And there is evidence for that, but they ignored a whole body of research about the importance of knowledge to reading comprehension. And, and so my fear is that if people interpret the science, that term, the science of reading, on the basis of that National Reading Panel report, they will think that all we need to do for comprehension and vocabulary, by the way, which which is really very closely linked to building knowledge, that all we need to do is, you know, teach a few vocabulary words and teach some comprehension strategies. And they probably will not just teach those strategies for which there is evidence, but things like finding the main idea for which there is no evidence. And then what's going to happen down the road, because this has happened before, is kids will maybe be able to decode, but they won't be able to understand what they're decoding because they don't have the knowledge for that. And then people will say, you see, phonics doesn't work because they can decode, but they can't understand. So you have to do both simultaneously. Absolutely. And I just was really thinking in terms of people being aware of the need for foundational reading. And then the next step in building our own knowledge as educators is understanding the role of knowledge building, because I agree completely. We can't wait until kids are in you know, third or fourth grade to start exposing them to this. Glad you made that distinction because I would never want anyone to think that I wanted them to wait. Right. Despite many teachers having read the book and being 100% convinced of the narrative that you created, you note that the solution is largely out of their hands. What is the solution and what should parents and others be aware of when advocating for children? Well, I think there is some progress that individual teachers can make towards this goal of narrowing the knowledge gap. They can organize their instruction around topics rather than skill of the week and spend, you know, at least two or three weeks on a topic. And they can ask questions that put the content and the 
foreground rather than the skills. And that'll do something. The problem is that building knowledge is this gradual cumulative process that extends not just across one school year, but across grade levels. Ideally, kids will re-encounter the same concepts, same vocabulary in fourth grade that they encountered in third grade, maybe in a different context. And maybe also they saw something similar in second grade. And of course, teachers don't have control over what happens at other grades. So the most effective solution, really, it's it's not uh, the only thing that needs to be done, but the most effective first step is for a school or a district to adopt a coherent, content-focused, knowledge-building curriculum that begins in kindergarten. And that's happening more and more across the country. I think as awareness of this is spreading, I mean, I am getting inundated with speaking requests now. Alabama, you know, Mobile a few weeks ago was my my first venture, (laughs) speaking engagement venture in real life since March of 2020. Now that's happening again. And that's, that's really encouraging. But there's still long way to go. And I know it's difficult for individual teachers. I get emails and questions, you know, I seem to be the only person in my school or my district who wants to make this kind of change. My heart goes out to people in that position because, you know, I think you need numbers. There's there's going to be strength in numbers and you need to try to bring other people along. And that's true for parents too. I've also talked to parents who, you know, have alone tried to uh, create this kind of change. And I think what we need is for parents to join together and teachers to join together. And sometimes, you know, administrators are going to be on your side. But the one problem, especially for parents, is it's not really that easy to even know what curriculum is being used in a school. And sometimes it really isn't one. It's like sort of up to individual teachers and it's kind of opaque. And, you know, I, I mentioned that I was involved in education reform and I was on the board of this charter school. I had spent lots of time in elementary classrooms and I didn't know what I was looking at. I was assuming that teachers were teaching social studies. And even if you visit, you may not really be able to tell what you're looking at. And I wish there was an easier way to identify schools out there that are using knowledge building curricula. It's it's very, it's not on schools' websites. It's not the kind of data that is reported on dashboards and that kind of thing. So I think that's the first step is for parents would be to just try to figure out what curriculum is being used in your kid's school or district. If you can discern that it's focused on comprehension skills rather than on content, then try to, you know, create a group of like-minded parents and maybe to get together with teachers who feel the same way and try to, you know, spread the word about that this is just not what science indicates is really going to help kids. Absolutely. And I think that the more we spread this word and get people involved, the more likely we are to accomplish that goal of, of moving it forward. There's actually some really interesting legislation that's kind of popping up across the country for transparency for school systems to inform parents of the curricula that their children are being taught with. And I think that that is a really good step because it's hard for parents to make decisions when they can't even tell what's being used. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And even if you get the name of a curriculum... It may not tell you very much. And there there are, you know, there's like Ed Reports rates curricula. And one of the criteria is how well do they build knowledge? But I have to say that lately they've given some high ratings to some curricula that are really not that great. So you have to be careful. Indeed you do. 
think one of the things that the book does really well is to show the political nature of the decisions that have been made in education. You really focus on the science of reading and the evidence for this approach. Why do you think there continues to be a divide on this issue when there's so much evidence on what works and what doesn't? Well, that is a complicated question. And of course, you know, right now it seems like everything is being politicized. I think it has something to do with the sort of prevailing outlook in the world of teacher education going back maybe 100 years now. You know, if you go back to the 1950s, when there was this book, Why Johnny Can't Read, about phonics. And parents responded very positively this, to this book. And teachers responded very negatively and portrayed this call for teaching phonics as something that was politically conservative. So it goes back that far. And, and I think the uh, building knowledge gets politicized partly for, for some of the same underlying reasons. And I think right now what we have is a lot of fierce debate about what knowledge to include, which complicates it. But I think underlying this politicization is really this idea that it's that has prevailed in schools of education. It's really best for kids to just learn on their own as much as possible and sort of discover knowledge for themselves. And so just surround them with great literature and they'll learn how to read, you know, just let them pursue their interests and they'll understand what they're reading. And for some kids that may be true, but for most kids... Actually, it's not. But there's this feeling that teacher sort of explicitly teaches something that that is somehow too authoritarian and could crush a child's spirit. And I, I do think that this goes back to a reaction against 19th century schoolmasters, you know, who had harsh discipline and, you know, kids had to memorize things they didn't understand. And it was, and there was this theory then that memory was just like a muscle. And if you memorize things you didn't understand, that would give you a better memory, which is not true. So nobody's taught like that for a long time now, but we are still living with kind of the legacy of the reaction against that. Interesting. <laughs> Having learned to read before I went to school, but I read by sight. And then when I got to school, I was taught phonics, thankfully. I think that so many people equate what is happening with their child with what they experience in school. And so that adds just even another weird layer on to this whole debate. Yeah. And, and these trends have ebbed and flowed over the years. I, I don't think that I was, I'm 66. And I think when I think back, I, I also knew how to read. My mother taught me how to read before I started school, but I have this memory in, in kindergarten of doing these getting ready to read workbooks. And it was like, it would be like a picture. And then you would have to come, the student would have to come up with the word that matched the picture. And this was supposed to help us get ready to read. And I remember one day, it was a picture of a man and a boy picking up like pieces of wood together. And I had no idea what word this was supposed to be, but I could already read. And I think my teacher kind of resented the fact that I could already read. And I remember I, the word was supposed to be help. This man and this boy picking up wood together was supposed to be the word help. And I couldn't come up with that. And my kindergarten teacher made me go stand in a corner because I couldn't come up with it. So <laughs> all sorts of things have been done in the name of teaching reading, I'm afraid. Uh, you're so right. You, you and I have spoken about the need for decoding and how the knowledge building piece is kind of the next step for schools. But do you see this as a social justice issue? And if so, what are your thoughts about getting this implemented in our high need district? Oh, I definitely see this as a social justice issue. I think the reading conversation has been driven in large part by people who are concerned about dyslexia. And they've done a great service in keeping you know, the pressure 
Chevron to, to teach phonics systematically. But for the most part, those activists, m- many of them parents, are themselves pretty highly educated. The problem that their kids are having is not a lack of background knowledge. So they haven't really focused on that. I do think that's beginning to change. We have many, many kids in essentially in high poverty schools who are reading well below grade level, probably both because of decoding problems and background knowledge problems. And they have not been getting the attention that they deserve. I don't know why we accept that 95% of the kids in a class are going to be reading below grade level. They sort of haven't been swept into the under the dyslexia umbrella for complicated reasons. But you're not, I don't know any school district that's going to want to identify, you know, 75% of its kids as being dyslexic. So that's not going to happen. But, you know, I have seen this in schools I have been in that serve lower income populations, like the, the one I followed through a school year for my book. I mean, of course, you should also teach them decoding in a way that works. But when you introduce kids to, especially at young ages, when they're just so curious about the world and you just tell them a good story and they're yours and their minds are like sponges, what these kids can do is unbelievable. And the teacher after teacher has told me, I can't believe what my kids are capable of doing. I never thought they'd be interested in the Vikings or ancient Rome or whatever. You know, these are English language learners. I never thought I should teach them words like deciduous, but they love it and they are learning these words. I think we have no idea how much potential we are wasting in so many classrooms. And as for getting how to get this change implemented, it's happening in some high need districts. You know, I can think of a couple like Baltimore, for example, is using a curriculum called Wit and Wisdom. And it's going to take a while to see those results at the high school level. But I've talked to teachers, the elementary and middle school level, and they are seeing the kinds of things I'm talking about. There's a district in Houston called Aldine in Texas that even during the pandemic, they've switched to Cornellage language arts. And there are places where it's happening. I am, you know, troubled. I mentioned everything's getting politicized. I think probably... I would say from the left and the right, there are threats now to to this trend, to, to adopting content-rich curriculum. From the left, there are people saying it doesn't center sufficiently the experiences of Black and brown kids. From the right, there are people saying it does that too much or it's fostering racism. And I just wrote about one complaint like that in, in Tennessee and the curriculum wit and wisdom that they're complaining about. I mean, I looked at the books they were complaining about. It's Ruby Bridges. It's, you know, it is not anything fostering racism on the con- Contrary. These are books that may bring up the fact that some people, you know, didn't want blacks and whites to go to school together as a way of saying, hey, that was a bad idea, you know. But, so I am a little worried right now that this is getting more difficult to implement, especially in, in some of our high needs districts, but they're the ones who need it the most. Absolutely. <laughs> you also wrote a book with Judith Hotman called The Writing Revolution, and it really details how to teach children to write. What do you think has gone wrong with our current approach to writing and what is different about the approach in the writing revolution? Well, I'd say um, a lot of what has gone wrong with our approach to teaching writing is the same as what's gone wrong with our approach to teaching reading, which is that we, we've kind of expected kids to just pick things up. We've treated writing as being separate from things like social studies and science and, you know, okay, now we're doing our writing block. And both of those things are even worse 
even less effective in the context of writing than reading. First of all, you know, kids aren't going to just pick up reading, but writing is even harder, way harder than reading. So, you know, a lot of kids, most kids are not going to just pick that up. And in our national, to the extent that we have information about national writing scores, it's 10 years old, but the proficiency level is even lower than it is for reading. It's about 25% as opposed to about 33% for reading. We know we've been doing a worse job with writing. And this idea that, you know, we can just teach writing in isolation from content, it is difficult to read about a subject you don't know anything about, but it is impossible really to write about a subject you don't know anything about. And and one response to that, I, I mean, I think teachers have sort of understood that. So they've gotten kids to write about their personal experiences, which they know about. The problem with that is those writing skills, if you write about like your trip to the amusement park over the weekend, that doesn't necessarily equip you to write about the causes of the Civil War or whatever. And we're not using writing as a way of building knowledge, which it really can be a very powerful way of building knowledge if we modulate that cognitive load so it doesn't overwhelm kids. So I'd say there, there have been like sort of three phases in writing instruction, all of them have kind of missed the boat. And one was the sort of teaching rules of grammar, parts of speech, maybe diagramming sentences in isolation. And there are lots of studies showing that doesn't work, doesn't carry over to most students' independent writing. And then kind of in reaction to that, we got those sort of writer's workshop approach, which is, you know, write personal narratives, et cetera, but also don't worry too much about teaching grammar and conventions because you can't really do that. And kids will just pick them up if they read and write enough. Well, it's true that teaching grammar in isolation doesn't work, but that doesn't mean you can't teach it. You can teach it, in the, but you have to do it in the context of students' own writing. So we've got a lot of students now who've never really learned conventions and, and, and grammar. And then we got the common core approach to writing, which was well-intentioned, as all of these things are, and called for you know more, even at younger grade levels, more expository writing, more argumentative or opinion writing, and more just more emphasis on writing, but didn't really tell teachers how to teach writing, and teachers haven't been trained in that. So that really hasn't worked either. And so what is different about the writing revolution approach? Essentially, two things. One is it does ground writing activities in the content of the curriculum, whatever it is, any subject, and really can be adapted to any grade level. So it's not a separate writing curriculum. And secondly, it recognizes the difficulty of writing for inexperienced writers. And so rather than asking inexperienced writers, including kindergartners, to just write at length, write an essay, it starts at the sentence level, partly because you know if you can't write a good sentence, you're probably not going to write a good paragraph or a good essay. And also because that's that makes it a lot easier to teach grammar and conventions. If you're not getting five pages of error-filled writing, if you're getting one, two, or three sentences, you can actually focus on those grammar errors. But lastly, and maybe most importantly, it, it modulates that cognitive load so that kids aren't so overwhelmed by writing at length. They don't have the capacity either to learn to write well or to concentrate on the meaning of what they're writing and really absorb and retain and deepen their knowledge as a result of writing about it. I agree with so much of what, or I guess all of what you said, but as a writing teacher at the high school level, I've seen it when our kids come to 10th and 11th and even 12th grade and they can't write a paragraph and we sacrifice teaching them just even how to write a simple sentence because we were focused on so many other things. And so I do think it is brilliant and it's 
backed by science. And I think that everyone has not already read it. They need to do it and start following what is outlined in it. I just will add that the way I came to the knowledge gap was through writing. I had mirroring sort of your experience. I thought, well, I'm a writer. I'd like to do something for kids. I also want to see what's going, you know, why is it, does everything fall apart in high school? And so I volunteered to tutor some 10th graders in writing at a high poverty high school in DC where I happen to know some people. And I, I thought I'd help them with their writing assignments, but I quickly discovered they didn't have any writing assignments. I think the teachers had kind of just like given up. So then I started giving them my own writing assignments and I discovered not only could they not write paragraphs, none of them really understood the concept of a sentence. That included one young woman who was an avid reader, incredibly bright, but all of them, I would show them, although I drank the glass of water and I capitalized the A at the beginning and I put a period at the end and they all thought it was a sentence. That is when I came across Judy Hockman and her method, which was then called the Hockman method. And Judy Hockman is the one who, and one of the things I discovered trying to tutor them in writing, I would give them things to read that I thought were fairly straightforward so that they could write about them. And I discovered that they couldn't understand them because they didn't, they lacked so much background knowledge. They didn't know what the Supreme Court was or, you know, whatever. Um, nobody at the high school knew why, but I talked to Judy Hockman about this and and she explained to me why. She, she had sort of this larger view. Teachers at the high school level don't necessarily know what went on at lower grade levels that had led to the problems they're seeing. And teachers at lower grade levels may not always foresee the problems that are going to arise later on. And so Judy was able to put this all together for me and get me going. But I do think writing is also, first of all, two things. One is writing is potentially such a powerful lever for building knowledge that it can compensate for gaps even at the high school level for for gaps in background knowledge. And secondly, at the elementary level, this is what happened with Judy Hockman too. I think writing can help open teachers' eyes to the superficiality of what they're trying to teach because they'll ask kids to write about something. Maybe they read two or three paragraphs in some basal reader about it, but they don't know enough about it to write even a sentence or two. And so what happened when Judy Hockman discovered that as a teacher was she and her colleagues started supplementing the basal reader so the kids would have enough information to write about. So I think it can be a way into solving the problem of background knowledge, of building knowledge. Yes, agree completely. I think you will forever be tied to education because of the knowledge gap and the writing revolution. What have you learned from working with educators that perhaps you didn't know before writing these books? Oh, so much. I mean, my mother was a teacher, but too much about education and what I thought I knew about education before I started working on the, the book and, and really before I started talking to teachers as a journalist instead of just being led through classrooms with a, you know, a group of sort of education reformers who spend five or 10 minutes in a classroom and then go to the next classroom and oh everything looks great, whatever. I had no idea, as I mentioned, what I was looking at. And this people are no longer saying this as much because it's turned out not to be true, people used to say, we know what works. The education reformers would say, we know what works. We just have to do it. And I believed that. And I later realized that I had been, you know, volunteering with programs or giving some money to think initiatives that were really part of the problem because we thought we knew what worked, but it 
a lot of that was let's, you know, get them ready for reading tests by focusing on the reading comprehension skills. And some teachers, I mean, obviously not all teachers were able to articulate or, or, or sense that something was missing, but a lot of them were. And, and I, talked to a lot of them and they helped me understand, you know, what was going on and what needed to change. And I remember walking out of one session I'd been in some conference, people were talking about the need to build knowledge. And I was talking to some teacher and I said, so you mean you've been doing this and you mean you've been doing that? And we, and she, she looked at me and she said, yep, we've really screwed things up. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I remember people telling me, you know, cautioning me about writing this book because I'm not a teacher. And, you know, they said, and I understand this, you know, teachers don't really like to be told what they're doing wrong by non-teachers. And I certainly know they understandably felt that way about a lot of education reformers and philanthropists. But I've been surprised how little of that reaction I've gotten from teachers. I mean, a lot of the reaction I've gotten is, is basically just thank you. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that a lot of what I wrote is based on what I learned from teachers. Well, and if you want to get in the weeds, you can talk to teachers because we will be the people who will be in the details. And so I do think you had to have some objectivity that perhaps those of us who are living it every day did not just to get a picture of it. Yes. And I do think that's where a, a journalist, you know, in any area of life can be helpful because you're an outsider, but you should be a good listener, but you should listen to a lot of different people and read a lot of different things. And then as an outsider, you can, first of all, you can sort of see things that we're all prisoners of our own experience. So you can sort of, as an outsider, see things that people who are inside that experience might not. And you can also put it together with a lot of other things that you have the time and the luxury to gather. And so that's what I tried to do. I love it. I'm curious as to why many of the publishers of knowledge building curricula are open source and why you think this is, and perhaps maybe what you think the implications are for the major publishing companies. Yeah, that's a good question. I I think this open source, open educational resource movement really started kind of accidentally. I found this out when I was researching the knowledge gap. There was this effort in New York called Engage New York to put online a curriculum that would equip students and teachers to meet the Common Core standards. And to their credit, the people who put it together understood that you needed to build knowledge in order to do that. And just apparently there was a meeting one day and somebody at the meeting who was, you know, high up in the State Department of Education said, you know, there are these things out there that teachers are putting up online, you know, lesson plans, essentially, that are available for free. And maybe we should do that with this curriculum. And so they did. And I think that people hadn't realized you could do that. And it became very highly used and and in some places very popular. And then I think what happened was that the philanthropists wanted to support some of this curriculum development. But what they asked for in exchange was that it be freely available because they didn't want to support a profit-making enterprise. And there's an upside, of course, I mean, to have with Engage New York, they wanted all school districts to have free access to this, not just in New York, but and not just the ones who could afford it. But there were a couple of drawbacks to this. One is that, you know, it's not just that uh, publishers like to make lots of money so that they can take expensive vacations or whatever. I mean, some of that money goes to like ensuring that the curriculum stays up to date or that improvements are made. And, you know, and so if you have something like Engage New York, you don't have an ongoing revenue stream to support that sort of thing. That's one possible problem. And another possible problem is that if if there's a curriculum like, well, core, core knowledge language arts is also just is available 
online for free, partly through Engage New York, just K through two, but then up higher grades are available through the Core Knowledge Foundation. Teachers could just with that curriculum and others that are out there for free, just pick and choose. They could just do one lesson or that, you know, and that kind of saps the power of a curriculum. Because as I mentioned, it it should be something that's coherent and extends ideally across grade levels, but at least through a school year. So that's one problem. I do think the major publishing companies, they're not the behemoths that they used to be, although they're still pretty influential. I think that's partly because of these open educational resources, but also because of the internet generally. And I I think teachers, school districts are just not relying as much on textbooks because they don't really have to. And I do think there's a downside to that too, because if, if a textbook is good and not either, you know, superficial or encyclopedic or both, if it's good, it can be a really helpful resource if a teacher may not be as, fam- you know, familiar with everything that she or he is supposed to teach or really for, for students. I mean, you, you can sometimes get some pretty fragmented materials if you're just going online, searching for random things. And, you know, I mean, I don't mean to criticize teachers. I, I, sometimes you have to do that because the, the textbook isn't good or whatever, but um, it would be much better if we had carefully curated content-rich textbooks that could teachers could then devote their efforts to figuring out how best to deliver that content to their students rather than going out there and trying to put together the content to deliver. Yes. And it's really difficult to find text, even if you're looking for something on a particular subject that's free for teachers to use. And so there is a really huge advantage to having these collections so that teachers aren't having to try to create them on their own. So I agree. So you are so passionate about this topic and I am too. I am so curious about what you're working on now and what your next projects are. Well, you know, one of the things that I wanted to concentrate on more is teacher training and the role of of ed schools and teacher prep programs in all of this. And I did toy with the idea of writing another book on that, but it is, the knowledge gap topic was really complicated and amorphous, but the whole teacher prep thing is is even more so. But I have been working on an article, a magazine piece on basically really looking at teacher training, teacher prep, and how and why it's diverged from what scientists have found about how the learning process works. And that is going to be coming out in the winter issue of a magazine called The American Scholar. So I'm, I'm excited about that. Uh, other than that, I, I'm not sure I have the time, the bandwidth to take on another project right now. Every week I'm getting several speaking engagement requests, et cetera. So I'm happy to do that. It's a fair amount of time, but I feel the, the message is so important to get out there. My hope is that more other people will start disseminating and communicating this message, you know, partly because I don't I don't want it to be just identified with me. I think it makes it too easy to dismiss as, oh, it's just her agenda. It's not my agenda. You know, it's out there. It's science. And I, and also I don't love repeating myself. So <laughs> I would really welcome other others taking up this cause, this message. And I know there are some, but I'd hope that they do more of this, you know, the disseminating of it. And and then maybe I'll have the time to think about other things I might want to do. Well, you are definitely a an ambassador for knowledge building. And so I know that everyone wants you. So I'm super grateful that you were able to do this today. I love your work. 
it is something that everyone, and I mean everyone, should be reading. I appreciate you so much for what you've given us and the impact that it's making. Well, thank you so much for those kind words, Shelley. And I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you again for having me. Thank you. Join us again next week for the next episode of the Alabama Literacy Network's podcast.